Coming up on Across the Chains, my guest is Joey Roth of the Dyad Stablecoin, a fundamentally new DeFi primitive. Will it kick off a new stablecoin summer? Plus, Curve is hacked, while the founder has $100 million outstanding in Curve loans. Is this the end of Curve? And Richard Hart gets pinched by the SEC. All this and more coming up on Across the Chains. Hello, guys. It's me, Corval, here. Today's show would not be possible without our sponsor, Shimmer Network. Just as a reminder, Shimmer is a DAG-based, feeless, layer one network that's both fast and highly scalable. You can learn more about them at shimmer.network. Joey Roth, how are you, dude? I'm doing well, man. Uh, really good to, I guess, both be back, but also be in a totally new, uh, totally new context. Because yeah, so you can tell those who, <laughs> yeah, so for those who don't know, so I used to do another show called Hash Rate, which some of you know about, and um, and I did like probably 40 episodes of that. Joey was my first guest, and I just sort of half decided to do a podcast. And uh, Joey and I had been talking about Dyad actually about a year ago. And, um, yeah. and I said, Hey, would you mind like uh, just doing a podcast right now? And we'll just sort of see how it goes. And he luckily agreed. And that was episode one of hash rate. So yeah, uh, I, I, I was, we scheduled a call. I was just going to sort of pitch you on the early idea of Dyad and get your feedback. And you're like, actually, can we turn this into a, into the first episode of this podcast? Then? And I was like, okay, awesome. Sounds good. So yeah, that was actually that, 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 that moved the needle pretty, pretty well to kick off. Um, yeah, just the, the interest in it and, and sort of the ability to recruit a team and, and get our pre-seed going. So, yeah, I, I never actually directly thank you. So thank you for, uh, for kind of <laughs> platforming it when it was really just an idea. It is it has definitely come a long way since then. Oh, dude, a lot, I, I know a lot has happened. And we're going to get into that in a second. So, um, you know, our old friend uh, Brad Nickel, who's also been on the show and runs his other, you know, his enemy podcast uh, to ours. No, not enemy. He's a friend. Uh, but Brad actually, uh, likewise, like me, has been pretty impressed with what you have done. Uh, thinks it's something significant. Um, I think he's participated in terms of uh, buying a DNFT, as have I, just for full yeah. disclosure. So, um, uh, so why don't you, why don't you tell us, I'll take it from the top. Tell, tell the people what Dyad is today. Yeah, for sure. So Dyad starts with the premise that stable coins live and die by the laws of unit economics, the same way really any product does. Uh, literally what is the cost to make a thing? How much more will the market pay for it? And what is the quality of the thing? And the quality of the thing often influences what the market will pay for it. So you're really trying to get maximum quality for minimum cost. Uh, and in the realm of stable coins, what the market pays, you want it to usually be a dollar. Uh, and that's that's basic peg defense. So what the goal of any stablecoin design really is, is be able to issue a dollar peg stablecoin, defend that peg for preferably less cost per token than one dollar, but have the quality of that peg be as high as possible. And quality simply means what are your redemption rights as a holder of that stable coin? And what do you get back when you redeem it? Uh, and how centralized is the thing? So that's sort of like how Dyad and myself, that's how we see 
the stablecoin design space. Um, and that really explains like people wonder why do Circle and Tether, which are fully centralized, completely dominate this market that ostensibly should be skeptical of centralization. And I think the answer is simply unit economics. They by far crush the unit economics of any other decentralized stablecoin. So Diet is ultimately designed to crush their unit economics while being fully decentralized and, and you know, radically immutable in some ways. So they're big because they're big. Is that sort of your, your thesis? Well, I think there's some level of that, right? Like Tether has a ton of liquidity on centralized exchanges, which makes the slippage lower, which makes traders prefer it. And yeah, there is that level of inertia, but it's also the fact that their structure is just their collateral or these off chain fixed income yield bearing assets, which means I'm kind of simplifying here, but every time a USDT or USDC is issued, they're essentially turning a profit because it costs them less than a dollar to issue a dollar peg stablecoin. It's the opposite with any CDP based decentralized stablecoin. And I would argue even more so with the newer like Delta neutral based decentralized stable pseudo decentralized stable coins like Athena um, UXT is the one who pioneered that, but we can get into that later. I think th the fact is, they have less than dollar cost to issue their stable coins that are pegged to a dollar and the market generally believes that peg. Uh, whereas decentralized stable coins almost all cost more than a dollar to create that dollar peg stable coin. And that's led to their limited growth. Yeah. So I try to explain things as best I can for a general audience on this show, which is a little bit different than hash rate. So, you know, Tether, Tether's old. Tether, I don't forget when they founded, but it was like, it was something like 2014, I think is, is sort of when they, first came into existence and they had um, massive utility on uh, overseas exchanges. It was the, you know, you couldn't wire money to them. And you, if you wanted to buy Bitcoin on, you know, on the early overseas exchanges, you had to have Tether. That was the lingua franca of, right. of that space. And, and so they were able to amass volume over a period of years with that killer app as their primary use case. And because they have, you know, and basically their thesis is you have to give us $1 of real real money in a real bank in order to issue one dollar on chain and right. so they take that real money in the real bank and they buy treasury bills and exactly. that and so that's how they're making money that's and in fact in quarter one of this year they made more than blackrock doing just that right yeah. which is insane yeah. right so and so see when you say cdb collateralized debt position stable coins yeah. um that is Basically, you don't have the same advantage because your construction is different. You're not interfacing to the fiat banking system in any way. Um, and, and so you're trying to be a completely crypto native, but collateralized stablecoin, but using crypto to collateralize it, correct? Exactly. And when you talk about a CDP, it, it almost by definition has to be over collateralized. And this is where the capital efficiency and the unit economics really start to suffer because Unlike, uh, you know, Tether or Circle, where they have complete centralized control, basically, of a lot of the stuff that is decentralized for these CDP designs, they can really control, like, how much collateral they're holding for their supply of stablecoins. So there's always debate about this, like, how collateralized is it there, whatever. But that opacity gives them tremendous freedom to, you know, do what they're going to do. When it's all on chain which I think is, you know, better, but it requires over collateralization, which is literally, you have to have more 
value backing each stablecoin than a dollar because that underlying collateral is volatile. That's basically, I mean, if you really want to break it down, a stablecoin takes volatile collateral, like it packages it into these, what should be non-volatile units, which are pegged to a dollar that you can do all kinds of stuff with. But because that underlying collateral is volatile, to make sure it doesn't dip below a dollar, you have to have more than dollar in there in general. And that leads to okay. that lower capital efficiency. So how do I collateralize my stable coin on Dyad? What can I, what coins can I use as collateral? Yeah. So at the base layer, Dyad is completely collateral agnostic. We have a very simple sort of minimalist and asynchronous governance process for bringing in collateral types and to sort of approve those. And each, you mentioned you and uh, others hold these DNFTs, each DNFT gets one vote that they can switch on or off for each collateral type. And if any collateral type gets a super majority, two thirds, then it becomes a dyad, uh, part of the dyad collateral basket. So to start with, we're basically proposing wrapped ETH, uh, Lido, which is the biggest uh, liquid stake token right now, um, as well as we're working with this really cool uh, DeFi protocol, Blueberry Finance, which you can just find them on Twitter. Um, their founder, Slater's good friend of mine, uh, really, really smart dude. They're creating a tokenized treasury product that we're also very excited to onboard as, uh, as collateral. Um, and this is, what's interesting about it is it's not, it's not just a, a token wrapped treasury that requires KYC. It's actually exposure to giving leverage essentially to holders of these tokenized treasuries. So it doesn't itself require KYC because we don't want to require that as part of participation in Dyad. So yeah, the, the first collateral types, you know, I think that when looking at collaterals for stablecoin, obviously liquidity is a big one. You want them to be liquid. You also, to kind of take a page from Tether uh, and, and circle to a degree, you want them to be yield bearing in some way. And you basically, LSTs are the chain native fixed income asset. They're the, you know, equivalent, the closest thing to a chain native treasury as you can get. And then you also have a tokenized thing that gives you exposure to actual treasuries off chain. So this is our sort of starting trifecta, but the system is designed to, through this minimalist asynchronous governance, be able to onboard new collateral types that, that might not even exist now. Hmm. Very interesting. I actually didn't know that. I think yeah. when we last talked, you were you were saying that ETH was going to be the only collateral that you were going to accept. Yeah. So this is a change, which is which is cool. I'm just it's just yeah. new. It's been it's been some growth. Like liquidity is one of the most I'd say the number one inspiration uh, in terms of existing stable coins. And liquidity is like you push sort of a the like purity of stablecoin design to to 10 or 11 and what you get is liquidity i'd say that the one thing there is if they they do use chain link oracles if it somehow had an oracle free design it would be like the most ideological pure stablecoin you could imagine um love the liquidity team you know token price has been a huge supporter um there we are really working with them on some stuff for launch as well um their issue though is the immutability is both a curse and a blessing. They are tied to just raw ETH as their only collateral type. And it's a, it, it's a little, makes it a little harder for them to drive demand through yield potential by just having, uh, you know, raw ETH as their, as their only type of collateral. And this is something that we sort of learned from. And for Dyad, we accepted a bit of governance really on the, you know, asynchronous minimalist side of the governance spectrum in order to be able to grow and, and take in new types of collateral that, again, there are some now like liquid stake tokens, 
tokenized treasuries of different kinds. And I'm sure there will be a lot in the future that, you know, we will want to integrate into what we're doing. So, you know, having studied now a bunch of stable coins, and I'm a lot smarter on the topic than I was the last time we spoke. Um, so there seem to be really two big problems or two big challenges. Um, the first one is peg maintenance. So how do you ensure that your stable coin is worth always worth only a, always worth a dollar? And that seems mm. to basically boil down to uh, what does Curve say your stable coin is worth? Right. So <laughs> Curve seems to be like the, the center of gravity of everything. Right. So if you're worth a dollar on Curve, if people and that means, you know, you can trade Tether or DAI or USDC right. for your stable coin for a dollar, then it is a dollar. And if it's if that's not true, then your coin starts depegging and falling apart. Right. That, that seems to be the case. So that's sort of problem one. Uh, problem two is liquidation. So when your collateral starts diving in value, um, can you liquidate it fast enough and, yeah. and efficiently enough, right? And liquidity solves this problem by managing the liquidation process within the protocol itself through the stability um, pool, right? That's a really nice design of a shock absorber that gets rid of the problem of what if there's a sharp wick down and you can't sell, right? All of a sudden, mm -hmm. if you can't sell, then your collateral doesn't actually back the coin and, and right. now you've entered, now you've gone through the looking glass in stablecoin world. So how do, you, how do you solve those two problems? Yeah, really good question. Um, so number one, I think that there's this discussion between hard pegs and soft pegs where it's like a hard peg of a stablecoin, you'd think that like there's some sort of mechanical device in the protocol that always ensures this thing will be a dollar. Um, and then a soft peg is more like a shelling point. Like we have incentives or ARBAR opportunities built in that will, if it, if it depegs, we sort of incentivize it to, you know, traders to, to bring it back to peg. Uh, in, in building Dyad, I've actually found that a hard peg doesn't exist. It's exactly what you just said. The price of your stable coin is what the market says it is. And there's nothing that a protocol designer can do to directly affect that unless we live in some authoritarian regime where the government can force the market to price things at a certain point, even in those scenarios, there's going to be a black market that forms. Uh, the market decides what something's worth. Nobody else can decide. It's not up to anybody else. So what you can do as a protocol designer, what you need to do as a responsible stablecoin designer is ensure redeemability and redeemability is sort of the essence of peg defense. It's basically saying that regardless of external circumstances, regardless of what's happening outside of this protocol, uh, you will always, if you hold a token that is a stablecoin, you will always be able to get a dollar's worth of exogenous collateral back for this token. Now, where Diaz so starts you, to shine. So for people who don't know yeah. what exogenous collateral is, no. so, so basically yeah. what you're saying is, if I've got a dollar worth of dyad, I can always, 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 no matter what's going on on Curve or any other exchange, I can always come to yeah. you and say, here's a dollar's worth of dyad. I want a dollar's worth of Ethereum back. And you exactly. will always give me a dollar's worth of Ethereum. Exactly. Okay. And that that is the fundamental responsibility of any stablecoin. That's like the, the priority zero. You have to do that or else your protocol is not really, not really a stablecoin. It might be something else, but that is a stablecoin. A stablecoin is... You have the token, you can redeem this token for a dollar's worth. Yeah, exogenous meaning 
a, a collateral that is not part of diet itself, because that's what Luna was, right? Luna was, you could redeem it for, uh, you can redeem your UST Tarek, for Luna. For Luna. Yep. Yeah, we saw, we saw how that played out. Um, so yeah, for, for diet and for really any stable coin, that's, that is the number one, uh, not even goal. That's your number one responsibility. So the way that we do that, this is why having multiple collateral types has become such a fundamental part of what it is that, that dyad is, uh, because let's say there's a tremendous amount of redemption pressure on one collateral type. Let's say everybody wants to get back uh, Lido because Lido is something's going on with it. It's good. Or uh, let's say there is a CRV pool that was a big part of dyad and people want to get out of that because CRV is going down. Or let's say, you know, for argument's sake, there was a Luna pool and diet existed before the Luna crash. And now it's uh, hmm. that day that Luna's going down and the, the value of it is tanking. So what, what the redeemability guarantee needs to be that is you can get a dollar's worth of one of our, of some of our exogenous collateral back at any time, but you don't necessarily get to decide which one. That allows the system to basically absorb these sharp changes in one of the underlying collateral types without the entire stablecoin becoming insolvent or becoming unbacked. So the way that we handle that is with these dynamic redemption fees. So normally, if there's little to no redemption pressure, you can redeem your dyad for a dollar's worth of the exogenous collateral and not really pay a fee on that. As the redemption pressure against a specific collateral type increases, and we just look at like, how much volume of redemption is there in a certain length of time, basically on the blockchain and blocks, um, that fee will start to ramp up. So that if there's a lot of redemption pressure in a short amount of time on a specific collateral that's back in Dyad, it will become more expensive to redeem against that collateral type. And those fees generated from those redemptions will go directly back to that collateral pool. So what happens is, if there's a ton of redemption pressure against die against like STE, for example, people are burning their diet, they want to get it, they will get less than a dollar's worth of that STE back for a dollar's worth of diet that they're burning. That will then mm. do two things. It'll generate fees that'll go back into the collateral pool. It will also incentivize people to start to redeem against other collateral types. So in the case that Cur that CRV is going down or Luna's going down, and people are trying to redeem their diet for these other types of collateral they won't be able to drain the good collateral from diet without contributing massively back to its liquidity. They can drain the bad collateral. And even if the price of that is going down, they'll be able to get a dollars back, even if that's like 10,000 of this token because the price is going down and that will burn the diet and take it off the market and also remove that bad collateral from the system while protecting- Doesn't that, doesn't that hurt your peg though? Doesn't, does, does this not- if it costs me more than a dollar to read, yeah. If I if I'm basically getting taxed on my redemption, and I and I realize it's only in one form of collateral, you know, I'm not getting taxed on the other forms of collateral. Mm -hmm. Does that still not in some way hurt your peg on curve because now dyad is ostensibly worth less than a dollar in certain circumstances? So it could it could depeg it down past a dollar, and this is something that we absolutely plan on happening at, at sort of extreme circumstances. What happens then though, is DNFT holders who have minted any amount of dyad, and if there is dyad there to like, in a supply that's exceeded its, you know, demand for basically, which is what's leading to the DPEG on curve, uh, there will be a significant amount of dyad debt across DNFT 
NFT holders, they then have the opportunity to buy that market, buy that dyad and wind their debt down for a significant discount. And the reason they would be incentivized to do that is the presence and the protection basically from these redemption fees of the, the good collateral that still remains in the system. So as long as all of the collateral is not simultaneously tanking, which again is the reason why having uncorrelated collateral types like you know treasury derivatives, uh, liquid stake tokens, wrapped ETH, uh, we're working with Venture Club actually, which does uh, NFT wrapped equity in, in startups. Um, we can onboard sort of stranger collateral types like that that still have a lot of value. Having a decorrelated collateral basket is critical here because as long as there is some good collateral that's not affected by the retrace or less affected by the retrace, there is an incentive for DNFT holders to not get liquidated and to wind down their dyad debt at a discount, which is what basically mops up the, the presence of any excess dyad that's on the market in those, in those situations. So having a, a diverse basket of stuff that is, you know, sort of in very different universes that is very unlikely to all get hit at the same time is important to the, the full backing of dyad. And, and that, you know, that, that is the theory is, is that will protect you, uh, in, you know, as, as much as anything can be protected in a bad situation. So that, that makes sense. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it's also understanding that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't expect it. I'll, I'll bring it back to like mechanical engineering metaphor. If you design a component to not have any type of, you know, just using basic terms, like to not flex at all and to be completely rigid in a system that encounters forces that are unpredictable, that are volatile. Um, it's going to be a lot harder to design that and likely it will not be as successful as designing in some degree of flexure into that component that you manage and you sort of prepare the system to deal with. Uh, this is This is honestly how I think more stablecoin designs need to think about the peg, that you need to basically get a range of acceptable uh, variability where it's like, I mean, for diet, it's down to like 0.98 up to like 1.02. We feel that that is within range. And that gives us an ability to design something that is far more robust than if we were obsessed with holding a $1 peg that doesn't vary at all. That, that actually is a more dangerous design because it restricts what we can do in terms of these incentives I just described and these mechanisms if we find a failure scenario of, of deviating at all from that $1 peg. Um, but again, I think that that's how people need to think about stable coins. Uh, we saw with the SVB collapse, USDC depegged up and down very substantially, even given their, their clear redemption uh, mechanism. <laughs> so you have to plan for this stuff. And you have to design a system that accepts some degree of variation in exchange for far, far greater robustness overall. So how do you handle liquidations? Because I know, you know, we, we discussed liquidity and that they're a very clever method of, of having a stability pool to handle liquidations. How do you do it? Yeah. So the way that Dyad works, I'll, I'll just break down really quickly. A typical CDP like Liquidity, MakerDAO, uh, Libra, any of these CDP designs each user brings in their exogenous collateral and that exogenous collateral is in its own little bucket or trove that is only usable by that user as backing collateral for minting their stablecoin. Other users can't go into their pool and mint against their collateral. 
Um, it's just this individual thing. So what that leads to is a lot of dormant collateral, exogenous collateral in these stable coins. Uh, you would have to incentivize every user to push their position as close to the liquidation line as possible in order to maximize use of that collateral. And you don't really want to do that because that means overall the system can't absorb as much volatility. Um, Dyad instead, when you bring in your collateral, let's just say you bring in your wrapped ETH, that doesn't go to your own individual pool. That goes to a shared single wrapped ETH collateral pool. And by bringing it in, you earn as metadata to your DNFT a certain usage right of that pool. You, you can then use your portion of that pool as backing collateral from into your dyad, but other DNFTs are also competing with you by locking collateral in that pool, trying to get a share, uh, a larger share as well. So you're basically, no matter what every user is doing with their own dyad balance or dyad debt, however you want to think about it, that shared pool is being used 100% at all times. And that also leads to how our liquidations work. Normally, to liquidate a CDP position, there needs to be some process of forced selling or auctioning of the collateral in that individual trove. Because all of the collateral in diet is in this single shared collateral pool, when a DNFT is liquidated, all that's happening is its rights to use a portion of that are being redistributed to the other DNFTs, and its dyad debt is being similarly distributed in a pro rata way. So oh. because we enforce over collateralization, that's a net benefit to the other DNFTs. Now they have a larger portion of the same collateral pool. But from the point of view of the collateral, it's not going anywhere. It's always in the pool. There's no selling. There's no auctioning. The collateral is in the shared pool and in there it always remains. What's happening with liquidations is completely within the domain of NFT metadata. So we're able to execute liquidations really quickly and with basically no impact to the the price action of the underlying collateral. So the DNFTs uh, represent ownership of the pooled collateral, percentage-wise. They basically, so sort think of? of an edit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, well, tell me if I'm wrong. First of all, is, yeah. that, is that mostly correct or not? That's a, that's a yeah, that's a good way of framing it. I think the best way is think of it, a DNFT as like, your own individual collateral basket against which you make your, your dyad balance. So your collateral basket is your combination of the portions you've earned in the various collateral pools. So your basket might be, you know, you have 0.1% of the wrapped ETH pool, 2% of the Lido pool. You'd be a whale for that, but, and like, I don't know, 0.8% of the tokenized treasury pool. Those three slices basically in your DNFT comprise your basket of collateral against which you mint your own your own diet and your diet balance is not a balance against any one specific collateral type it's a balance against that combined pool so you're sort of inherently cross-margining between these different types um and your ownership of those shares is just sort of usage rights it's not like that collateral goes into your dnft and then if you get liquidated it has to be sold from out of your dnft it always stays in those pools. That's where the ERC-20s are, and they remain there. Your usage rights, which are basically just determined and defined by the metadata in your DNFT, that can change really quickly because others are, are kind of competing to take more of your portion because the size of the collateral pools goes up or down. Or if you get liquidated, it's simply taken that metadata is, is 
slash to zero in your NFT and added to the, the other DNFTs in the pools. So I have a DNFT. So yep. that means I can now go to Dyad and I can mint stable coins from the pool uh, based on my you know percentage that my DNFT represents of the combined pools. And I can yep. go do that right now. Now, if the price of ETH starts diving and sharp wicks down, you don't actually liquidate it. It just stays in the pool. But isn't, isn't there a chance that the entire pool may be worth less than all of the dyad that's been issued by all the DNFTs combined? So in that case, when the when the value of the pool is basically, or, or the value of like the combined collateral basket in each DNFT is less than 150% of the total dyad minted balance, because we do have a 150% minimum collateralization ratio, but that 150% is counted against the combined basket and this again gets to why is it important to have multiple uncorrelated collateral types so the value of wrapped eth could be retracing significantly if you still have enough of the two other collateral types and their value is is remain strong you might not get liquidated off of that even if the value of wrapped eth is is really going down it depends on how close to that minimum collateralization ratio you push your diet minted balance now, in a scenario where all of the different collaterals are retracing, um, this is sort of like a doomsday type scenario, and there is more dyad out there than there is USD value to redeem it. Um, again, probably the market will react to that. There will be a slight peg downwards, but that's really a, an opportunity for DNFTs to market by and burn that dyad to reduce their dyad debt. And again, when a DNFT burns dyad to reduce their debt, there's no fee associated with that because they're not removing collateral. They're not redeeming. They're just winding down their debt on their DNFT. So they can basically wind that debt down for a substantial discount. If dyad goes hmm. down even like 0.99%, there will be an immediate demand for buying that dyad at, at a discount basically to wind down that debt. And that's just an instant process. Uh, a different function than if you're trying to redeem the dyad and get back the exogenous collateral. Can I, can I, so first of all, so liquidity, their minimum collateralization ratio is 110%. So it, yours it is, is they liquidity actually, they, they try to push people to 150%. 110% is sort of like the, I don't want to say marketing number, but they they want it to be 150%. I'll put it that way. If if the average goes below 150, it goes into recovery mode, in which case everybody is basically required to keep 150. So the, the protocol itself can't really sustain 110%, which I don't blame them for. I mean, I don't think that yeah. that's a little bit of capital efficiency is worth it. But yeah, the 150%, honestly, is just this Lindy number at this point. Um, it could be more, it could be less. Uh, the fact that Dyad doesn't really have the zero-sum trade-off between minimum collateralization ratio or just over-collateralization period and the capital efficiency because we have this shared pooled model, um, it's less of a negative thing to, to have a higher uh, over-collateralization ratio. But yeah, to your point, that over-collateralization is ultimately what makes liquidations a net benefit or at least neutral for the other DNFTs that are not getting liquidated because you're, you're absorbing more of the liquidated DNFTs die at debt, that at debt has to go somewhere, but you're also getting their shares of these, of these shared pools. 
in, in order to in order to mint dyad i need to have a dnft is that correct like nobody can totally totally yeah okay. and so there is no minting without a dnft one of the big opportunities probably early on but also continually for dnft holders is going to be the spread between non-dnft holders who want to basically buy or borrow dyad from them and their cost to mint dyad which can be often less than one dollar depending on how they play their position and and lock collateral in the various pools to get their shares so there will be a, a immediate and and pretty continuous opportunity for dnft holders to basically mint dyad for those who do not have dnfts and supply the market with that dyad Okay, and where are you with all this right now? Like, how much dyad is out there? Is there a dyad curve pool? What's the current uh, state of things? Oh no, dude, we're we're pre-launch in terms of the actual stablecoin. Oh, you so are what okay. We launched. We you were on our whitelist. Obviously, you're kind of an insider. We launched to our whitelist, um, claiming DNFTs themselves on ETH mainnet, and that's you know we've deployed that base layer contract. We've audited it, you know, four times at this point. That is the real DNFT contract that is going to be the base layer of the protocol. Um, we've gotten to just a hair over 50 ETH uh, claim fees from that whitelist DNFT launch, which is, which is great. Um, that is going to be followed in, I, you know, we're not, we're definitely not through audits on it yet. So I don't really want to quote a hard uh, ETA, but we are close to launching the first vaults. Those, those that I just mentioned, and that will be, the birth and sort of the genesis of the the diet stablecoin itself. That's when DNFT holders will start to be able to use these pools. And the initial e wrapped ETH collateral pool is going to be these claim fees that we've collected from the the DNFT uh, uh, minting. Uh, they will be able to then you as well as others mint diad using their DNFTs um, from these from these vaults that we that we deploy uh, pretty soon. Okay. So let's shift now to talking about legal stuff. Um, I've actually, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of BRC twenties and mm. uh, I have at, you know, at certain times played around with the idea of, you know, is there a way to make a BRC 20 based stable coin on Bitcoin? And, and so mm. far I, I can't, I, I haven't come up with a design that I think actually works. Um, and there's just a lot of limitations obviously, because it's on Bitcoin and you know, you're restricted because there's no smart contracts really on Bitcoin. So um, but but nonetheless, the other the other thing that's sort of um, to me is potentially problematic is in the in the United States, you know, stable coins are legal right now. You know, in a, you know, in whether they're whether they're um, your type of stable coin or a tetherback stable coin. But we know that stable coin regulation is coming. Um, and the last I heard is it looks like there's no agreement between Patrick McHenry and and Maxine Waters and that, you know, that side of the fence. So it actually does not look like stablecoin legislation will pass this year, although other legislation about crypto may pass. Um, but from what I've heard, what's, what's being talked about is, you know, only things like Tether and USDC that are backed by um, fiat dollars in a fiat bank account will be allowed. And you'll have to somehow register with the federal government. These other things that are backed by crypto only will not be allowed theoretically. Um, are you are you worried about the, this coming legislation that may make everything you've done outlawed? Where, where, where's your head at on that? Yeah, so you know, I'm 
I'm very comfortable with whatever level of like personal legal risk there is. I'm obviously a U.S. citizen. Um, I'm not moving. I think that this is stuff that's absolutely worth fighting for. Um, other sort of beliefs and interests of mine also have, you know, faced the same type of regulatory pressure um, from the time I first got into them, other hobbies of mine, other things that I think are important. So I think that it's not un unusual territory for me. Um, but from a design standpoint, like how exposed is dyad, um, you know, categorically to this, this type of legislation? Um, there are a couple of things that we've done kind of both to make it a better protocol, but also definitely shrink our regulatory risk exposure, which is number one, as I described before, the, the actual base layer diet protocol is completely collateral agnostic. So we don't whitelist as a, as a protocol building team, any specific type of collateral, all collateral that's used for dyad comes in through this social consensus mechanism that I described that every DNFT holder gets basically one yes or no vote for each collateral type or, or vault design that's proposed and they can change that vote at any time so it's almost like an on off switch that they can flip anything that gets a two-thirds supermajority is onboarded as as a collateral type so that you know the fact that we're not whitelisting or saying this is collateralized by anything at the actual code base layer is part of that the other part of it is payment stable coins or stable coins that are designed as a medium of exchange those are, are specified and sort of be targeted much more than collateral or just sort of um, DeFi oriented stable coins, which is what Dyad absolutely is. We have no plans for people to buy coffees with Dyad. We have no plans for Dyad to be on a mobile app that people are using to, to pay each other. The sort of vision for Dyad is it becomes a set of rails. I mean, any DeFi protocol needs to have, or any DeFi system needs to have as its goal, this eventual top layer where you're providing uh, utility. Honestly, credit formation is the main utility you provide for like non-crypto fintechs and, and parts of the real economy that people can then build on, build services on and actually start to use. So you get this nice retail flow coming through. Um, Dyad is not going to be like, I don't see people on their phones using Dyad to do payments and things like this. So that also is something that's being specifically, uh, I'm not even going to say targeted yet, but seems to be part of the definition of a stablecoin uh, that's that's sort of forming legally. Um, and then the the third part of it is, it's, it's very easy to, you know, say that the, the goal of a lot of the stable coins that are being targeted are ultimately to deliver yield on the stable coin to holders. And we've been very careful in designing Dyad that there's no protocol internal yield mechanism, both because we don't want Dyad stable coins to hang out in the protocol. The goal is to sort of launch them externally into the rest of DeFi. Uh, so we don't want to create sinks for Dyad internally, but also there is a regulatory reason to do this where there's no inherently yield generating mechanism. Dyad's yield potential comes entirely from the margin between what it costs to mint it and what the actual peg is. And that lets you do strategies like we're working with, you know, Blueberry Finance, um, Jones Dow is interested, these, these uh, protocols and uh, builders who build strategies on top of DeFi primitives. That is what we're 
percent going to for the yield on diet. There's no in inherent yield on diet itself, even though it can onboard and will onboard yield bearing collateral types. So diet itself almost is this neutral mid layer between collateral type issuers, whether it's Lido, uh, wrapped ETH, uh, or to some kind of treasury tokenization and strategy builders who will use the unique properties of Dyad to do strategies that are completely new or use it in place of other stable coins and their existing strategies with just far, far, far higher yield and greater capital efficiency. So we've been intentional about looking at where the regulation is going and basically minimizing our exposure uh, to that risk. Um, that said, you know, we're, we're in the process of reincorporating in Switzerland, uh, in Zoom Valley. Uh, I'm not moving there, but, you know, we're going to be domiciled there just for, to sort of reduce our risk further. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much of the mind that America and sort of what America represents has incredible potential and has achieved incredible things and sort of made me who I am and made a lot of people I know, you know, who they are. It's definitely not the kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to run somewhere else because the legislation is better there now. I think that building here, staying here and pushing back against uh, things that are clearly written in a way that doesn't really understand the differences and the factors between behind what's going on and is sort of based on, I mean, this is how a lot of legislation is written, especially when it's legislation like bans certain things, um, just just based very much on like, what are the emotions of constituents and people who got hurt by things, which is understandable, but should not lead to legislation around like technical things. So right. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very committed to like, I, I'm not I'm not totally anti regulation. I'm not an anarchist. But I think that regulation needs to be based on very informed people uh, or just high level of information about what is actually being regulated and crafted with the best actors in the space, best builders in the space to create something that, you know, brings transparency, fairness, and um, doesn't restrict innovation. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my take on the, the whole regulation thing. Okay. Good, good, good to hear. All right, so I'm going to move us along now to the news. So thank you very much for all that uh, that very yeah. enlightening information on Dyad, and congratulations on all the progress so far. Before I move, us thanks, along. man. You're you're so. part of it. So so yeah, thank thank you to everybody else who is now part of the DNFT holder community. Um, I'm sure some of you are watching right now. I just posted the link to Discord. So yeah, uh, super super salute to all of you guys. Uh, definitely definitely appreciate the early conviction and uh, and support. All right, let's talk now about the curve hack and subsequent uh, uh, potential cascading liquidation crisis. Um, so last, so a few days ago, uh, and I don't know why these things happen on the weekend, but they do. Um, there was basically a hack of Curve, and uh, it was a seventy million dollar hack. It was a hack of the Viper compiler, so a pretty deep level hack, and something like seventy million dollars was drained out of Curve, um, which then set off a Second potential um, crisis, uh, the Curve founder, Michael Igorov, um, has about 47% of the entire Curve supply. So roughly half is in his control. And about $100 million of that um, was deployed into, uh, he's got about $100 million in loans. So he's got, uh, so, so $168 million Curve on Aave. Um, so he borrowed $63 million tether against that. 
uh, on Frax Lend, he has 32 million curve uh, as collateral, and he borrowed 17 million in Frax. And uh, then he's got something similar going on on Abracadabra and MIM. But I think that the real the, the real killer here potentially was this uh, Frax Lend loan. So the way Frax Lend is designed, which I didn't know this until this crisis hit, uh, the interest rates goes up exponentially depending on utilization. So the closer you get to 100% utilization, like the interest rate just climbs like crazy. So normally we'd all be terrified of the curve price crashing, thus causing a cascading liquidation. But on top of that risk, we also now have this interest rate climbing exponentially based on uh, utilization. So basically um, that greatly incentivizes payback of the Frax Lend loan. So on, on, uh, you know, on, on, uh, on curve, uh, Michael deployed a new pool, which greatly incentivized people to um, reduce their utilization of that Frax Lend pool, right? So he rewarded them in curve tokens for reducing their position in that Frax Lend pool, thus making the interest rate start coming back down again to something more reasonable. So he used curve and plus he started paying back his loan um, and reportedly he, uh, Justin's son, also gave him a loan to pay back his loan, right? So Justin's son sort of swooped in here. Um, so all of these things combined were kind of, they were faith-shaking, right? So at one level, we all, Curve is, is something we all trust. It is a honest protocol. It is the heart of, it's the beating heart of DeFi in many ways. And Viper, I think we all kind of more or less trusted. And both of those things were shown to have feet of clay. And so that that was that was just like, oh my God, that's that's not good. And then and then we had this other situation. So I, I gotta be honest with you, this affected me personally more than Luna, more than FTX. It made me really question DeFi as a category potentially overall with all this stuff going on. How did you react to it and what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the topic of the day. I mean, I immediately thought about mechanism design, right? I thought, that's where my mind went. I thought about like liquidation yeah. design. I thought about like why these, these sizes are not big, right? Like the 7 million, you know, hundred million loan. This shouldn't be having any kind of systemic effect on even something with the TVL of DeFi right now, which is, is not certainly not what it was a year or two ago. Um, but I think it really comes down to, the uh, sort of like dynamic mechanisms that become far more dynamic and ultimately reflexive uh, as they sort of com compound on top of each other, which is what you see with this debt on various protocols and the effect on the CRV token itself. Um, you know, that said, I think it's going to be fine. Mitch was able to, as you said, like OTC, uh, a bunch of CRV, uh, start to pay down the loans. Um, but but I think it is a wake-up call in two ways. I think, number one, on the on the smart contract side, uh, yeah, the, the compiler vulnerability, the double, the multiple re-entrancy uh, because of this, this whatever you want to call it, bug in the Viper compiler. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm technical on like the mechanism design level. I'm not technical on this level exactly. Uh, but our lead dev, Shafu, uh, I wouldn't say that he he predicted this, but he definitely called out that that the compiler level. I mean, he's you know probably one of the best Solidity devs there is. Very lucky to have him uh, leading that part of Dyad. Uh, but yeah, he he tweeted, and I can find the tweet that you know nobody really 
looks at compilers with the same security microscope as they do with the code itself. But when you think about it, you know, the code that is audited and is subject to, for good protocols at least, multiple rounds of audits, um, that's not what goes on the blockchain. What goes on the blockchain is the bytecode, which is what's the, the sort of solidity or Viper uh, put through the compiler and then output it is what the blockchain actually gets. Uh, so yeah, the, the fact that the compiler itself was this blind spot, Solidity is not immune from this. Um, there's no technical reason why the Solidity compilers would not, if they're similarly neglected, wouldn't have similar attack vectors. Uh, they just haven't been found yet. But again, this is not, I want to be very clear, I'm not technical on that level. Where I think it's really interesting is on the liquidation mechanism and just sort of on the the the, the intertwined and highly dynamic uh, compounding reflexivity that we saw with what really is a small size sort of like multiplying in effect through the possibility of bad debt on like, yeah, Aave compound, these other really large protocols. You know, I think the other side of this is People like sharing pictures of Mitch's like crazy mansion in Australia. That's <laughs> their sensationalist aspect to it is sort of like larger than the actual size of the the issue itself numerically. Um, but yeah, I think it's both like it's just kind of salacious, but it's also like aspirational. Like you want to be able to buy a mansion with stuff that you do in DeFi, right? That's like almost almost proof that it's it it actually is not just like magic internet money that it is it is something that can have real world effects um yeah. yeah i think my my overall takeaway is that the fact that that something of this size could become a systemic risk means that there's a major gap in the way that these kind of situations are handled on the mechanism design level or on the on the protocol level and this you know this this sort of speaks to our obsession with liquidation design with dyad i think that liquidations are probably the most important part of any debt-based protocol, which is uh, a stablecoin absolutely is. Well, do you think, I mean, look, it's, uh, th this is another part of the, one of the articles that I read. Um, she, you know, it, it, the article argues that Agarov arguably did nothing wrong here, right? So he followed the pre-written rules of a, uh, a loan that basically loan making platforms have, which is exactly what, what, uh, what paper, people like Peter Thiel do is they don't actually cash out their stock. They give the stock to a bank as collateral, and then they borrow against it. And so they don't have to pay taxes on their stock, right? They never actually cash it out, so there's never a taxable event. They just take loans against it as collateral. And if you watch the WeWork um, uh, thing on Hulu, that's exactly what WeWork guy did as well, right? So he never yeah. cashed out his stock. He just simply took loans against it. This is the same thing. Agarov is doing exactly the same thing. He's just and, using and, DeFi and to do it, right? And he sold the curve tokens instead of using them as collateral, he'd be thought of as like a villain, like he's dumping on his holders. I mean, that right. that clearly wouldn't have been the right move. I think, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think the argument to be made is that like, why does he have half of the CRV supply? Um, you know, that's, I'm not going to speak on that. I think, I think Mitch is one of the best founders in the space. Curve is absolutely still, that is not, change my Absolutely opinion true. i think curve is one of the most like any protocol designer has a lot to learn from that team and how they executed and what curve is so yeah it still has has not shaken my respect at all 
I will say we're very sensitive about supply concentration with DNFTs, especially because there is this uh, ultimate security comes from this social consensus layer where if somebody who is malicious got control of two thirds of DNFTs, they could they could inject a contract that lets them print a billion of dyad from nothing and then the protocol's over. So we're very, you know, there's reasons why they wouldn't do that. If there's a level of TVL to be stolen, the value of those two thirds DNFTs is sort of implied to be greater than what they could extract. But anyway, even in raising our pre-seed and now our seed rounds, we, we're not, it's a network. It's not like a, a private company. So we're not willing to give a single investor like more than 10% essentially. Uh, and that's, that's including team. So we, we are very sensitive about that. We've had great success. If you look at Etherscan with our DNFT claim contract, we have fewer than two per holder on average, which means a really nice level of uh, distribution. And we, we intend to keep it that way. I think that that is part of the security and part of the decentralization, honestly. If you have a fully decentralized protocol, but there's someone who holds a ton of it, that, you know, that's not really decentralized. It doesn't matter at that point. All right, so That's let me move also, along. I mean, Actually, I got one yeah, more. Go I want, so I'm going to move us along a little bit here. Yeah. So I got one. I got one last thing on the uh, the curve situation, which is kind of kind of wild. Um, so while uh, Al ETH depegged during this curve uh, thing, right? Uh, it basically it you know because that Al ETH was one of the pools that got hacked on Curve. So uh, and that's uh, Al uh, not uh, Alchemix ETH. Uh, yeah, so it exactly. dove in value severely. And while it was down, you know, at the bottom, somebody came along and bought a shit ton of it. So they swapped five ETH for 1,200 AL ETH. And remember, these two things should be one to one. But at this moment, the curve pool was so tipped over uh, that this one person came in. And when AL ETH started going back up to its peg, it didn't get all the way back up, but it got 65% of the way back up. Uh, they made a killing. They made a 250X on this thing. Um, kind of within the space of a day. So, you know, if you were clever and you knew how to, you know how to uh, work the situation, this whole thing was the best thing that ever happened to you, right? So, so pretty cool. I mean, that's that's the beauty of, of uh, fairly open markets, right? You're, you're always going to, anytime there is a, some dislocation, there is absolutely alpha generated and whoever scoops that up is, or, you know, is ready to, ready to go. But that's, I mean, that's why I'm so obsessed with this stuff. It's such a beautiful self-healing mechanism because anytime things become unzipped, there's money to be made zipping them back up, but that person's compensated and things get zipped back up. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a good, good example of that. I, that's the first time I saw that. So I'm friends with some of the Alchemix guys. Um, uh, some of them are you know, capital. Scoopy, so Troubles, those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Scoopy. I, I've chatted with Scoopy before. Um, some of it is is clearly not not happy for them, but I think they're dealing with it in a really responsible and good way. I wasn't aware of this specific trade that somebody was able to pull off, but I love <laughs> to see stuff like this. It's one yeah, of the me things. Too. I I always I always say like uh, you know the vanguard of financial innovation is often very degenerate. So I'm not like at all put off by like the presence of DGENs or traders or people who are into this kind of stuff. I think that it, it, if anything, it's a, it's an indication that this is the innovative edge of uh, what's happening in finance. And On a much larger scale, what that guy did with ALETH is exactly what George Soros did with the Bank of England. 
it's literally the same the same way to make money, right? So but there's nothing wrong yeah. with it. It's just part of the system, right? If, if, if it's wrong in one system, it's wrong in the other system. Uh, or they're both right. So I, I agree with you. I think it's a completely healthy thing. So let's, yeah. move, let's move along now to the next story. So our friend Richard Hart uh, gets pinched by the SEC. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's <laughs> some, some commentary going back and forth. So this, this was one thing that uh, popped up. So Safadian Amos <laughs> responding to Richard Hart. So you know, Richard Hart saying, I think you misunderstand Bitcoin. And Safadian Amos has written books on Bitcoin. Uh, I would like to point out a few things you have missed. Let's have a chat. And Safadian and Amos goes, I think you should go fuck yourself and your stupid shitcoin blocked. <laughs> so, you know, Richard Hart, Richard Hart is definitely a polarizing figure. Uh, his pulse chain, his hex coin, um, you know, some people call it a scam. Some people call it, you know, some people are are, are huge fanatics about it. And I, I, I know both kinds of people. So it's definitely, and, and, and to be honest with you, hex did surprisingly, I uh, appreciate quite a bit during the bull run last time, even more so than a lot of other things. So it did do largely what he said it would do. Um, that All that said, though, um, you know, Richard Hart has now earned the ire of the SEC. Um, you know, basically they filed a lawsuit saying that, that he conducted, conducted an unregistered security offering of Hex and Pulse Chain, and he misappropriated millions of dollars of investor funds um, he raised more than $1 billion and used the investor funds to purchase luxury items, including a 555-carat black diamond, sports cars, and watches. So he's definitely been a bit flashy with all this stuff. And things like this are now starting to appear. I don't know if this is real, by the way, uh, but I did see this in my feed. A whole bunch of different Richard Hart aliases. We did learn that his name is actually Richard Schuler. It's not really Richard Hart. Uh, which I don't think is really a surprise. I don't think anybody believed his name was really Richard Hart. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to ask you the question, what do you think of Richard Hart there, Joey? And do you think this uh, SEC lawsuit is deserved or not? Uh, I mean, I got to say no opinion. I, I haven't really been following. This is, you know, the crypto, crypto is a, a big tent. And I think I'm very much on the side of like the sort of um, – builders uh nerds about like mechanism design and capital efficiency and all this stuff we've been talking about i'm not i'm not as much i don't really have an opinion on the sort of the other side of like totally totally different uh sort of out there stuff the, the one thing i will say is well two things i don't think anybody should be targeted with like state enforcement because they're flashy i think that that's ridiculous that's a complete like the state should not operate that way that's not how it should go um that's my opinion there but i also like i never want to be a figurehead right like i never want to be like a cult figure like a leader type of guy like some of these other people in crypto have been and i think that's a very big red flag if there's like a guy who's like people talk about him more than they do about like the protocol or the chain that he developed or the tech or the, the fundamentals of what it is. Um, and you see this over and over again, right? Like Do Kwon, uh, mm -hmm. he was like on Twitter being super aggressive and cocky with, with uh, everybody, you know, fighting their uh, token, you know, die will die by my hand, all of those, those quotes. Um, 
Sam from FTX. Like I live in San Francisco. I remember there was a period driving around. I saw they bought these big billboards that were literally just like a blown up picture of this dude's face. And at that point I was like, let me make absolutely sure I do not have a dollar anywhere near anything <laughs> this guy touches any sand yeah. coins on Solana FTX anything and that was way before all the stuff happened but I would never invest with somebody who puts their fucking face on a billboard to to promote their financial product I mean that's 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 crazy to me I never want to have my face on any billboard and never want people to be hanging on every tweet that I do I mean I I want to be another participant in the diet ecosystem a builder in this ecosystem but on a level that is equal with other people who are building the ecosystem. That's the whole point of this. The whole point of DeFi trying to be an alternative to the financial system. It's not to concentrate power and cultishness even more in individuals. It's to kind of remove that and to, to, to remove the necessity of having these, these human leaders who are making decisions for people and who people are following but you know i think unfortunately like it's just a factor that i've come to see more and more on average most people kind of want to like have some person who they can look to and kind of follow it's easier to digest that than it is to like read a white paper and understand some mechanism design so i think i'm kind of i'm kind of weird in that way most people i guess are more comfortable no i think you're right I, I agree with you and tron kind of runs that way tron's got this kind of culty thing around justin's son too and uh, i actually met him at a con at um i can't remember what conference it was some conference in new york um maybe two or three years ago and at that conference he was a big sponsor and, and it was Tron that was sponsoring, but when it, all the elevator doors had Justin's son's face on it, which I just remember that. <laughs> I was just like, I, I don't like that. Like that yeah. yeah. I, I think anytime crazy. you see, anytime you see a founder's like face being used as like the main ad, I think that's a major sell signal for whatever it is you're, you're trying to do. That's just like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that, that never, that never turns out well. And just personally, that's, that's not why I'm in this, right. I, I do not want to be any kind of cult figure. That's, that's like completely antithetical to, to kind of like why I'm in this, the kind of community I want to build, just, just what, what the way the diet goes, but you can, I mean, you see good examples of this too. I think like Vitalik obviously has that status as well, a little bit, probably not by his own design, but the way yeah. that he kind of plays it is is a lot different than, um, you know, many of these others I mentioned. I think because, uh, you know, he doesn't have, he has a ton of influence, obviously, but he can't sit it down on his computer and get on his ledger and, and massively fuck with the Ethereum chain. Like, it's just, it's not built that way. It goes through validators. Yeah. So I think that mechanism design to some degree does limit or at least kind of constrain even if the founder or the creator of it does want that sort of cult status it a little bit constrains what they can what they can really do whereas if you have something like ftx that's just completely centralized you know sam can press a button and and send user funds to caroline or whatever it is then you can yeah. really you know then then you see like faces on a on and a it's a problem yeah okay well we're coming up on the hour mark here so uh before we go just want to let everyone know my new sci-fi thriller, which has been out for about a month, uh, and it's good. It's getting almost five stars on Amazon uh, with 29 ratings. Um, it's going to be free on Kindle this coming Saturday through this coming Wednesday. So if you're at all interested, just go and slurp it down. 
uh, to your Kindle completely for free, no charge whatsoever. Um, I've sold about 2,000 copies to date. It's been out for about a month. Uh, in addition to that, this is the Kemp chart, which is Kindle Unlimited, uh, sort of like Netflix for books. And basically what this chart is saying is that if you start reading it, you're probably going to keep reading it. So, so, so far it's, it's come out of the gate pretty strongly. So I'm running a promotion because I, I just basically want more people to read it and review it. So go get it this weekend. Joey, thank cool. you so much for coming on the show. Kind of again, kind of not, but kind of again. And <laughs> sharing everything about Dyad. Um, I, I'm definitely looking forward to the launch and I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. And I actually had no idea you were a sci-fi author. So I, I need to, I need yes, to check is, that out now. That's really cool. That's my first book. That's really that's my, cool. This is my 10th book. My first book was uh, published by HarperCollins. So I've done both sort of the self-publishing and the trad, TradFi thing, TradPub as well. So, that is super so yeah. cool. Yeah, I still have all of my like tour, you know, uh, 10 book series at my parents' house uh, up in the attic somewhere when I was like, I was super, super, super into that. I, I don't have as much time to to read for pleasure now as I'd like to. But hopefully once Diet is a little bit more decentralized, let's say, and I'm definitely not the one pushing the the, the levers and everything, I can, I'll, I'll have some time to get back to that. But yeah, congrats with the, the traction that you're seeing so far in your bookmark. I'm Thanks, dude. Totally appreciate that. All right, everybody. My name is Mark Jeffrey. This has been Across the Chains. We'll see you all next time.